next to our fireplace, there are a number of picture albums that my wife has painstakingly pieced together over the years. Some of those pictures are old enough that you would need an interpreter to know who's who. Some of them were taken this year. But together, those snapshots tell the story of our family. Just this week, I saw one of the members of our family cuddled up in front of the Christmas tree, reminiscing through the pages of those albums. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, serves as a sort of spiritual family album. It gives us snapshots of our past and snapshots of our present. And it allows us to reminisce about who we were and who we are. And like most family albums, Paul begins with the old pictures and he, knew, and he moves to the new ones. In verse 12 he says, remember that you were. Those are the old pictures. And then when we come to verse 19 he says, so then you are. And there are the new pictures. But in this spiritual family album, the contrasts are far greater. Because if you look at our family album, you will see some changes. Uh, There's age change and weight change and hair loss. Uh, You can count it over the years and wrinkles that that develop and, and those kind of things. But when we look at the spiritual family album, the contrasts are striking because we have gone from division to unity, from hostility to peace, and from alienation to reconciliation. And Paul wants us to cuddle up with this spiritual family album and do a little reminiscing about the changes that God has brought about in our lives. And in this passage, we see in verses 11 and 12 what we were. We see in verses 13 to 18 what Christ has done. And then in verses 19 to 22, we see what we are. And we began to look at this last week. We saw what we were in verses 11 and 12. We were separated socially, so much so that God's chosen people, the Jews, actually called us derogatory terms. And we were separated spiritually. We're told in verse 12 we were far away from God's nation, far away from God's covenants of promise. We were far away from God, far away from Christ, and far away from hope. That's a bleak picture. And then we're told in verses 13 to 18 what Christ has done. And we began to look at that last week. We're told that when we were far away, Christ has brought us near. That into our helpless, hopeless, meaningless existence, Christ has brought peace. Peace with God and peace with man. And Paul points out three ways that he did so. In verse 14, he tells us that he is our peace. That peace is a relationship with the one who is peace, Jesus Christ. And then secondly, he tells us that he made peace. And we see that in verses 14 to 16. And he underlines three activities involved in Christ bringing about peace. The first was demolition, the second creation, and the third reconciliation. The first is demolition. Verse 14 at the end and verse 15 at the beginning says that he abolished, he Demolished, He broke down the dividing wall, which was the law, which divided Jew and Gentile. Second was creation at the end of verse 15. We're told that he created one new man. 
He didn't just take Gentiles and make them Jews. He didn't take Jews and make them Gentiles. He made each one of us new creatures, and collectively, he made us into a new entity that he calls one new man, which is the church. Which brings us to the third thing that he did, and that's where we're going to pick up in our study this morning, reconciliation. And we see that in verse 16. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Now the word reconciled means to change. And it's a word that's always used of relationships. It means to change a relationship from bad to good. To change a relationship from enmity to friendship. And our relationship with God needed to be reconciled. Our relationship with God needed to be changed. You see, it wasn't just that we weren't on speaking terms. We were actually God's enemies. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. You say, well, that's a little harsh. I mean, I wasn't really God's enemy. I mean, I wasn't at war with God. I wasn't fighting with God. I wasn't hostile with God. Well, yes, you were. Because James chapter 4, verse 4 says that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. So when we make ourselves friends of the world, we are making ourselves enemies of God. And how friendly were you with the world? Well, in verse 2 of this same chapter, he says that we walked according to the course of this world. So we weren't just friends with the world. We were entrenched in the world. In fact, we were the world. And as such, we were enemies of God. And you know what's interesting? The hostility was mutual. If you go back to verse 3 of this chapter, it says that we were children of wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. And so we were rebellious against God And God had nothing but wrath toward us because of our sin. That's a bad relationship. How does that relationship get reconciled? How does that relationship get changed? Well, look again at verse 16. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Now notice, who does the reconciling? Christ does. You see, we didn't initiate it. We didn't accomplish it. We never could. When you're sinners alienated from a holy God, you can't do a whole lot to bring about reconciliation. You can't just call God and say, we need to get together and negotiate. Jesus had to do the reconciling. See, that's the major problem with most religion today. It's man trying to reconcile himself to God. It's man trying to work his way back to God, and that cannot be done. Only Christ can reconcile. And how did he do it? Well, in the words of verse 16, he did it through the cross. Now, what happened at the cross? Well, look at the last phrase of verse 16. It says, At the cross, Christ put to death the enmity. Now, when we think about the cross, we think about Christ dying there. But this verse tells us not only did Christ die on the cross, but he actually put something to death on the cross. Now, what was that something? Well, he tells us here it was the enmity. And what is the enmity? 
Well, that's easy. For the answer to that, we simply have to go back to verse 15. Because there he says, he abolished in his flesh the enmity. Same word. And then he tells us what it is. Which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. The enmity is the law. And the law which caused enmity between Jew and Gentile also caused enmity between man and God. You say, well, how did the law do that? Well, let me share a verse with you. This is Romans 4.15. It says, for the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there is no violation. The law brings about wrath, hostility, enmity. Now let me try to illustrate that. If you went out to Montana and you drove across Montana at 120 miles an hour, the highway patrol may not like it, but they will not stop you because the governor just recently said there's no speed limit in Montana. Now some of you young people are saying, let's go. You know, that's... But if you go through Montana at 120 miles an hour and you cross the border into Wyoming and you continue at that same speed, I guarantee you that eventually you will be stopped by an irate patrolman. Why? Because they have laws against that in the state of Wyoming. You see, the law brings wrath. And Romans 5.13 tells us that before God gave the law, sin was in the world, but it wasn't imputed. In other words, man was doing things that were wrong, but God wasn't pulling him over because there weren't any speed limit signs. But when God gave the law, he posted his signs. Thou shalt not, thou shalt. And at that point, man's sin became more evident and God's wrath became more evident because God started writing tickets. When I was in Bible college in Chicago, we... Uh, lived in Oak Park, and there was a law in Oak Park that you could not park your car on the street overnight because the street sweepers came in the night and cleaned the streets, and the snow removal came at night, and so they had a law, no cars parked on the street overnight, which made a great business for those who had parking lots around there because they rented their spaces to people overnight. We had one fellow in our school who did not like that law, and so he parked his car on the street, and he left it there overnight night after night after night. And every morning he would come out and there'd be a ticket on his windshield and he'd take the ticket and he'd drop it over his shoulder into his back seat and it would fill up the floorboard. And when his floorboard got about eight inches deep with tickets, the city got tired of sending him notices and so they contacted the school. So you got a student here who's defying the law. And so he had to face the music and he ended up owing a fine he couldn't pay. Had to make installment payments to the city of Oak Park. You see, that was our condition before God. We broke his law and we faced fines we could never pay. But that's where Christ came into the picture. He put to death the enmity. He put to death the law. You say, well, how did that happen? Well, turn your Bible over a few pages to Colossians chapter 2. And there Paul explains it. 
Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. says, and when you were dead in your, trespa- your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Now, how did he do that? Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. Now, what is that certificate of debt? That's the law. Consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. How did he take it out of the way. Look at the rest of verse 14. He has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. Now that's a vivid picture. When the Romans executed someone on a cross, one of the things they did was they nailed above his head the statement of the crime he had committed. You remember when Jesus hung on the cross over his head the sign read, King of the Jews. This verse tells me that God nailed something else there on the cross. He nailed there the crimes you and I had committed. He nailed there all the laws that we had broken. They were nailed to the cross, and Jesus paid for those. And so he paid the debt we could never pay. He paid our tickets. And he took the the law out of the way. And so this verse tells us that he put to death the enmity. The demands of the law have all been paid and the wrath of God has all been spent and so there is no more hostility. In fact, in relationship to us, the law and the hostility which it brought is dead. It's finished. It's gone. It's over. And that's why Paul could say in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been reconciled, changed from enemies friends. And if you come back to Ephesians chapter 2 and notice verse 16 says, he reconciled them both in one body to God. Jew and Gentile alike are brought together and reconciled to God. And so Christ broke down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. He made us into an entirely new man, the church, and he reconciled us together in that one body to God. You say, well, I got a problem at this point. Because if Christ is peace and he established peace, then why is it that we don't see peace in the world? We're singing about it this Christmas season, but we look around and we're sending troops to Bosnia to try to maintain some semblance of peace. Why is there no peace in the world? Well, the answer is because there's a third step in this process, and that is he preached peace. And that's verses 17 and 18. Notice verse 17. It's a quote from Isaiah 57, 19. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Christ is our peace and he established peace, but that peace is only realized by those who respond to Christ in faith. And that's why after achieving peace, he announced peace. Now, When did Christ preach peace? Well, if you examine the Gospels, you will find that Christ's preaching was almost totally to the Jews. Here it says he preached to those far away and those who near. That would 
be Jews and Gentiles. Christ preached primarily to the Jews. In fact, in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 24, he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His focus was on the Jews. So when did he preach to the Gentiles and when did he preach peace? Well, we would figure it would have to be after the cross because peace was accomplished at the cross. Do you remember what Jesus' first words were to the disciples when he came in on that resurrection Sunday evening when they were meeting together in the little room? Remember what the first words he said to them were? John chapter 20 records those words. He came in and he said, Peace be with you. Peace. In an altogether new way, he had established peace and he preached that to his disciples. But I think in verse 17, there's a reference not just to Christ preaching when he was here, but he's talking about how Christ preached through his apostles and how he continues to preach through his followers today. And the message is a message of peace. In fact, later in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 15, our message is called the gospel of peace. That's the message we preach. And this verse tells us it was offered to those who were far away, the Gentiles, and to those who are near. And from each of those communities, those who respond to Christ in faith experience what Paul describes in verse 18. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Not only is the hostility gone out of our relationship with God, but Paul says we now have access. That's an interesting word. It's only used three times in the New Testament, twice in Ephesians and once in Romans. It's the word used in Romans chapter 5 when we read, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, in Paul's day, the word access was a familiar word. It conjured up the idea of a of an eastern kingly court. When you wanted to have an audience with the king, you had to request that audience, and if it was granted, you would say, I have access to the king. That's the word used here. We have access to God, but what's interesting to me is that there are two important differences that mark our access to God. The first is that we don't just have access to God as king. Verse 18 says we have access to him as father. The biography of Abraham Lincoln relates an incident that occurred during the Civil War. The president was involved with his cabinet in a very crucial meeting. And while they were in the cabinet room working out their grand strategy, there was a knock at the door. And they opened the door and it was Willie Lincoln, 10-year-old son of the president, he said, I want to talk to my dad. And the biographer relates how Abraham Lincoln laid aside all the duties of state and how he left the cabinet members cooling their heels while he went outside to see what his son wanted. You see, Willie outranked all the others because he had access to his father. And that's what... Paul is telling us we have here. We have access to our Father who just happens to be running the universe. But there's a second distinction. Not only do we have access to Him as our Father, but the second thing I can note here as a difference is that our access is not limited. 
We don't have to put in a request a few years in advance. We don't have to tiptoe into his presence. In fact, the other time this word is used is in chapter 3 of Ephesians down in verse 12. And it says, in Christ, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. We can come into the Father's presence with boldness and confidence. Why? Through our faith in Christ. I had a meeting last week with a fellow who came to me because he wanted to get his spiritual relationship straightened out with the Lord. And he shared with me a little bit about his spiritual relationship, and he said that he had accepted Christ as a young boy, but he'd never really walked with him, never really lived for him. And years and years and years had gone by, and now he was ready to come back and get things right with the Lord. Well, you know what's exciting to me? I didn't have to tell him, look, I'll try to arrange a meeting with God and I'll get back to you. I mean, I, he probably doesn't even remember your name after all these years. I'll have to go through all the red tape. And, see, I didn't have to do that. He was right there in my office, and what happened? We had access to the Father. That's a beautiful thing that God has given us. Not only has he reconciled us to himself positionally, but he's given us access into his presence. We can come boldly and confidently to the God of this universe as our Father, and he responds to us. Verse 18 includes the entire trinity, if you look at it. It says it's through Christ, in the Spirit, to the Father. That's our access. The same access that Christ has to God, we have to God because we are in Christ. And the whole trinity is involved in that. And we said last week that peace is not just the absence of war. Peace is unity. And we see that described in this verse because it says both Jew and Gentile have access to the Father in one spirit. That is unity. And that is what Christ has accomplished. Which brings us to our third point, and that is what we are, verses 19 to 22. Because of the peace that has come to us in Christ, we're no longer the same. And in these verses, Paul gives us three metaphors that describe who we presently are. He pictures this new community, the church, as God's kingdom, God's family, and God's temple. First of all, he describes us as God's kingdom. Notice verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. We're no longer strangers. The word strangers has the idea of someone who doesn't really know much about where he is. We are no longer strangers in relationship to God's kingdom. And secondly, he says we are no longer aliens. That word means foreigners, and foreigners are different from strangers because foreigners may in fact live in a place for a long time. They may know a lot about the place, but foreigners have no rights. Foreigners are living on a passport. Foreigners don't have the right birth certificate. And he says that's who we were in relationship to the kingdom of God. We were on the outside looking in. We were strangers. We were foreigners. But now, he says, you have been made fellow citizens with the saints. Now, who are the saints that he's talking about here? Well, I think he's talking about the Old Testament saints. I think he's talking about Abraham and Moses and Elijah and Noah and David and Daniel and all those guys. We are fellow citizens with the saints. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11? 
And I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Who are those from east and west? That's us, the Gentiles. We come together and we sit down with Abraham and all the saints of the Old Testament. We are fellow citizens with the saints. A week ago yesterday, my wife took several people up to St. Louis to see the young Messiah at the Keel Center. And uh, I was studying and, and, and busy, and so I didn't go. And the next day, on Sunday, I asked my daughter who went. I said, well, how was it? She said, it was good. And I said, well, where did you sit? She said, well, we were on the second row to the top. She said, in fact, when we stood up, it felt like you could touch the ceiling. And she said, during intermission, we tried to find better seats to get a little closer. Well, that's what it is to have a ticket, but be barely in the door. But see, that's not the way for us in the kingdom of God. Because we are fellow citizens with the saints. And that speaks of two things. It speaks, number one, of unity, and number two, of equality. We are fellow citizens in the same kingdom, and we are citizens with the same rights. There aren't any second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. We are our fellow citizens in that kingdom. And then the second thing he tells us is that we are... God's family at the end of verse 19 and are of God's household. Now if it wasn't enough to be members in the kingdom of God, now he says we're even closer. We are members in God's family. I mean the idea of being a citizen in a kingdom is a little bit impersonal, but the idea of being a member in the family is intimate. In fact, this is a concept that John the Apostle never got over. In 1 John 3, 1, he said, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. Wow. We are the children of God. A king is concerned about our general welfare, but a father cares about our every need. And that's why Jesus said, Your heavenly Father knows the things that you need. And in each one of these pictures, Paul emphasizes unity with the exception of this one. He doesn't say anything about unity. And I think the reason is because it's assumed that in a family, there is unity. In fact, you know what the most common word in the New Testament to describe Christians is? It's the word brethren, which means we are brothers and sisters in the family of God. And then the third picture he gives us is that we are God's temple in verses 20 to 22. For nearly a thousand years, the temple in Jerusalem had been the focal point of Israel's identity as the people of God. And now Paul is telling us God has established a new people, a people that are not localized in a particular geographic area, but a people that are coming from Jew and Gentile all over the world. And so the question arises, well, if you've got people from all over the world who are linked together in an identity in Christ, Where's the temple? And Paul answers that in these verses by telling us that we are the temple. And he tells us three things about that temple. Its foundation, its formation, and its function. First of all, its foundation, and that's in verse 20. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, there's nothing more important than a foundation. Remember Jesus story about the wise builder and the foolish builder. The wise builder built on the foundation of the rock. The foolish builder builder built on the sand. Foundation is important. Here he tells us that our foundation is the apostles and prophets. 
You say, well, I thought the foundation was Jesus Christ. Well, it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But that's a different metaphor. And if you compare those two passages, they're different. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we are the builders. Here in Ephesians chapter 2, God is the builder. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the building materials are our works. Gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble. In this passage, the building material is us. We are the stones. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Christ is said to be the foundation. Here at the end of verse 20, Christ is said to be the cornerstone. And so the foundation in this building, this temple, which is the church, is the apostles and prophets. Now who's that? Well, that's the apostles that Jesus chose. And the prophets, those who had the gift of prophet in the early church. Now, some have tried to say that this word prophet refers to the Old Testament prophets. But that's not consistent. Because if Paul was going to say that, he would reverse the order. He would say it's the prophets and the apostles. And the context doesn't allow for that. Because if you slide down in chapter 3 to verse 5, in the immediate context, Paul says, "...which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men." as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. The apostles and the prophets lived in the same generation as Paul. And so he's talking about the apostles of Christ, the prophets who had that gift in the early church. Others have said that the foundation of the apostles and the prophets is the foundation which they laid, which is the Word of God. But that's not really consistent here either, because if you analyze this analogy, this building is entirely made up of people. And so he's not talking about the Word of God. He's talking about people who make up this temple. In fact, in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 14, John describes the New Jerusalem, which is a picture also of the church. And do you remember what the foundation is there? Listen to this verse. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The apostles are the foundation. Now, in what sense are they the foundation of the church? Well, obviously, chronologically, they came first. And so in that sense, they are the foundation. But also in their ministry, they were foundational because they had special miraculous gifts that verified the coming of the church and the reality of the church. And they also, as we said earlier, gave us the word of God. And so they laid that foundation through their ministry that would be built upon in the future and is still being built upon in our lives today. They were foundational. And in fact, today there are no apostles. There cannot be apostles because Acts chapter 1 says one of the prerequisites for an apostle was that he had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that was a foundational ministry upon which the church has been built over the years. That's the foundation. Second, we see its formation at the end of verse 20 and into verse 21. Notice the end of verse 20. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone was the most important stone in a building. It was laid first, and it was laid very carefully because it defined the lines for the rest of the foundation, and it defined the lines for the structure going up. And so it both supported the building and gave direction to the rest of the building, Christ in this spiritual temple is our cornerstone, which means that all the other stones must adjust to Him. He supports us as well as directs us in this building. 
But not only that, if you look at verse 21, it says, In Christ, the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Christ goes beyond the normal function of a cornerstone in that we're told here that He fits the whole building together. That you come along and you get saved and He, and he puts you right into the building and you fit there. Now, some people struggle with that and the analogy Paul uses in 1 Corinthians is of the body and we're all members and we, some members complain about where they're at in the body. You say, well, I wanted to be a foundation stone. I didn't want to be a window in the temple of God. Well, this verse tells me that Christ put you right where He wanted you. He fitted you into that slot. And that's right where you need to be. He doesn't need a foundation stone up at the top of the building. That's a problem. And so you need to learn to be who you are. And you need to understand from this verse that Christ has fitted us together just the way we ought to be. Say, I don't like being in this church. I wish I was over in uh, Montana. You know, where they can drive fast. Well, God fitted you in here. And we have to learn to get along. And that's the point here. We are united not just to God, but to each other. And He has fitted us together with those other people. And then the second thing He tells us in this verse is that He causes growth. This is a unique temple. It's growing. How is it growing? Well, it's growing numerically. Acts chapter 2 and verse 47 says the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Day by day, new stones are being added to this temple. People are being saved and Christ is fitting them in to His holy temple. But beyond that, we also grow spiritually. First Peter 2.5, which uses the same analogy, says you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. We're being built up day by day. And that's why he says here in verse 21, we are growing into what? into a holy temple. That's a process. We are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Which brings us to the third point briefly, which is its function. Verse 22. Notice that verse. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. What is the function of this new temple? Well, in principle, it's the same as the old. It's to provide a dwelling place for God. It's to provide a place where God dwells in fellowship with His people and we are that place. Now, when you think about it, we have come a long way. Because in the Old Testament, as Gentiles, we couldn't even get close to the habitation of God. Now, we're told in this verse that we are the habitation of God. And when you read this chapter, it starts out telling us we were dead in trespasses and sins. We had the wrath of God upon us. Down in verse... 12, it tells us that we were without Christ, without God, without hope. And then the chapter ends telling us that we are the very habitation of God, that He lives inside of us. Amazing. We have quite a spiritual family album to look at. And I trust that you have been reminiscing as we have cuddled up with it for the last couple weeks. As we've looked at snapshots of the past and the present seeing how through the cross of Christ we who were foreigners have become citizens. We who were strangers have become family. We who were without Christ are now in Christ. We who were far off have been brought near. We who were enemies have been reconciled to God. We who were hopeless have inherited the promises of God. And we who were idolaters have become the very dwelling place of the true God. 